Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net. And um, let me add my welcome. So we're in Genesis chapter 9. Today is officially the first Sunday of Advent. So we're going to be talking about Noah and the flood. But next week, we finish our series in Genesis and we'll be, uh, God willing, starting a four-week Advent series. So we'll be looking at some classic Christmas uh, Bible passages. Two of our elders, our leaders, are going to be speaking. And fourth and eleventh and then the eighteenth, as you've heard, we'll be having uh, a big carol service. We hope we'll fill this place. So invite all your neighbors and friends. It's going to be great. We've got angels uh, on stepladders and shepherds and donkeys and whatever else. Um, so, and then Christmas Day is a Sunday. So we've got special permission to come back here uh, on that Sunday and meet in the school, which is great of the school to do that for us. So again, we'll be doing a family service that day, a one-hour service with uh, children taking part. So if, you can, if you're here, please come on the 25th as well. Um, right, let's just pray before we look into God's word together. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good things we've already enjoyed this morning. Uh, the world you have made is still turning. You're sustaining it. We woke up with breath in our lungs. Uh, we are here. And uh, you have spoken to us already through the singing, the sung worship, the voices of your people, the songs, the scripture readings, your very word spoken to us. We've seen each other's faces. We've seen people welcomed into membership. We've, we've, we've heard prayers and we've joined in prayers. We've already received a great deal. Uh, speak to us now, we pray, through your word. Uh, when we open this Bible, we open, as it were, your lips. So come and be with us now by your Holy Spirit, we pray, and, and f- enliven our minds and hearts and, and make us listen and, and understand and respond in faith and change us through the power of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this Tuesday, can you bring up the um, picture? This t- Tuesday, the Manchester Evening News reported how dozens of homes and businesses were flooded in Greater Manchester earlier in the week. A month's worth of rain fell in five hours. So in five hours, a normal month's worth of rain fell on the city. The worst hit areas were in Tameside and Oldham. Some streets were submerged with up to five feet of water. So I'm guessing that's up to about here. And when the floods came and hit, there's a, a, a tunnel collapsed and the floods came, the river came through it and schools were damaged and uh, businesses. There was a danger that the bridge was going to collapse. That's just one small flood, one small downpour of rain. When floods come, they cause absolute chaos. But you know, that misery pales into comparison, in comparison with Noah's flood. We thought about this a couple of weeks ago. In uh, chapter 6, God of, of Genesis, God is so weary and grieved by the sin of human beings that he decides he will wash them away and, and destroy the humanity that then exists, except for one family, Noah and his sons, uh, Noah and his wife and sons and daughters, and they will take refuge in something called an ark. And in chapters 7 and 8, which we haven't read here, is the account of that great flood, how the waters came down from the heavens and churned up from the earth. It was as if it was a great undoing of the creation that God had made back at the beginning of time. And 
At that moment, everybody knew that God's word was true and that God had judged them, but it was too late. They couldn't get into the ark. So many, many people died. They were swept away by floods. Far worse than this, their, their homes and families have gone. A very sobering account. Now, here we are in chapter 9. After the flood, the boat comes down on a mountain and they uh, come out. I want to clear up a few misconceptions about the flood and Noah before we, we press on. The first thing is to say that this ark that they were in was not a boat. I just slipped into saying it was a boat. It wasn't a boat. It wasn't actually designed to sail anywhere. All it was was a floating box, massive box, much bigger than anything else that was ever built in the ancient world. I think it was about 450 feet long, bigger than a football pitch. And it was designed to keep representatives of all the animals and creatures that would come in and the family safe. It just had to float and then come down. And this ark, although it's often portrayed in kids' little kids' um, cartoons and uh, uh, even Mike, Fernando and Mel, I went to their house and they had a nice wooden ark with which Barney can learn about animals. I'm sure, Mike, you're not telling him, Barney, that's how God judged the world. <laughs> it wasn't fun. Uh, the other thing we commented a couple of weeks ago is that the, the Bible doesn't claim a date for this great flood. It doesn't claim a date. It could have been very, very early, much earlier than recorded history. The Bible does say that the flood was catastrophic. It was catastrophic. It, it engulfed. It was a deluge that engulfed a wide range of people, all the people and, and a wide area. But not necessarily the entire surface of the world was covered in water. There are different ways of reading our text. It may have actually just been a very, very large region where all the human beings who then lived had spread to. If that's a, a difficulty for you, please come and talk to me afterwards. Uh, even so, the story of the flood has led many people to skepticism. They say, you know, we read this, we're really in the realms of fables. It's kind of naive tales for pre-modern people. How, how should we, who believe the Bible, respond to that? Well, some have noted that over 300 flood stories have been documented from all around the world. From Europe to the South Seas, from the Americas to the Far East, only in Africa are these stories noticeably rare. Now, many of these stories are very ancient, and they share common features. Now, that is consistent with a common origin. It is what you would find. It's reasonable to think that that's what you would find if there had been a catastrophic flood, and the survivors had told and retold the story, which, of course, they would. Now, for others, there are scientific questions that are raised by the thought of this great flood, and not all of our questions can be answered. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago the work of two geophysicists at Columbia University, William Ryan and Walter Pittman, who published a book in the 90s with evidence of a great deluge in the Black Sea at about 5,600 BC. They pointed out that levels of lakes had dropped through evaporation, but the changes in worldwide hydrology had caused the overall sea level to rise, and at some point the Mediterranean spilled over a rocky sill at the Bosphorus, and they reckon that the event flooded 60,000 square miles of land and significantly expanded the Black Sea shoreline. They claimed that 40 kilometers cubed or 10 cubic miles of water poured through every day 200 times more powerful than the Niagara Falls. 
for 300 days. And the area was flooded and destroyed. Now, was that Noah's flood? We just don't know. It could be. At best, it's a speculation. Noah's flood could have been a lot earlier than 5,500 BC. But I want to just mention all of this for those of you here who are not Christians, but are curious about the Bible, and you're looking into the Bible's claims, just to say, don't just write this off. Actually, I think the flood causes a far bigger challenge to those of us who are Christians, a bigger challenge to a biblical faith, and it's to do with the character of God. Because the Bible unapologetically says that God was angry with humankind and God brought the flood on them as a judgment for their evil. So God destroyed most of the people who then lived. We're talking now about what we sometimes call the wrath of God, his sustained, calm anger and the judgment that comes from it. Now that is a challenge to biblical faith in our day and age. And Christians are sometimes tempted to shy away from talking about judgment or to soften the Bible's message. Let's talk about love all the time and not mention judgment. But it won't work because the Bible from start to finish says that God is rightly angry with evil. He hates sin. And he must judge and punish it because of his character. And he is well within his rights to do so. Now, that's a hard message. But it's a message in a context. And the context is wonderful love, mercy, and grace. So we always need to think about these things together. Grace and judgment. Mercy and wrath. Because it's only when we understand the dark background of our sin and wickedness that we will really grasp the astonishing message about Jesus. This is what it means to be rooted in God's version of reality. That's what our series has been called. To learning how to see the world through the Bible's eyes. We're at the end of our journey today. It's a journey that began with the creation of the world. We learned about uh, many of the huge building blocks, the huge foundations of, of the scriptures. We've thought about the nature of God himself, what he is like. We've thought about humans being, the nature of what we are created in God's image. We thought about what we're supposed to do, our purpose here on this planet. We thought about marriage, sexuality, the nature of temptation, sin, and its consequences. Huge topics. And this is our tenth and final week. We finish our journey with Noah and his family opening the door and coming out of the ark into a new era. The waters have gone down. And the language here in this chapter is full of hints that this is a new creation. Judgment that's happened is the backdrop to God's mercy of letting them come into a new world. And as we finish our journey, we're going to actually end up this uh, sermon looking at a rainbow. Looking at a rainbow, which is just what they did, and thinking about its implications as we take the Lord's Supper together. I want to think with you about God's reasons for judgment God's relationships with us and God's rainbows. God's reasons, God's relationships, and God's rainbows. Firstly, his reasons. Why was God angry and why did he judge and destroy the people who then lived? The first thing we have to understand is that the whole earth and everything in it belongs to the living God. 
He made it all and he sustains it all. To imagine that we can somehow claim that God has violated our human rights and that we can judge him is to completely misunderstand the situation. God made us and he sustains us. The universe is not self-creating, it's not self-sustaining. Without God's active preservation, according to the Bible, it would collapse in an instant. God owns it all and he keeps it all going. That's why Noah and his family are forbidden from eating blood when they eat meat. You must not eat meat, it says in verse 4, that has its lifeblood still in it. And for your lifeblood I will surely demand an accounting. I'll demand an accounting from every animal and from each human being too. I'll demand an accounting. Why is that? Because the, the blood of a living creature is its life. And its life belongs to its maker. We all belong to God. The psalmist writers say, you are God and there is no other. Our God is in heaven and he does what he pleases. It's all his. We don't have a freehold. We are all tenants. Did you know that if you own a property in this country and you die without a will and with nobody to, to inherit, do you know what happens to the property? It goes to, back to the queen. The land belongs to the crown. I was talking to my neighbor when I heard about this, who was a lawyer, and she said, yeah, ultimately, you don't really own your house, you know. Really, it's the queen's. I was like, blimey. Maybe she could help me with the mortgage. <laughs> Even the queen of England is a tenant on God's earth. We're all living on his land, eating his food, breathing his air. <sighs> Thank you. How have we repaid him for all the things he's given us? The many, many blessings we've received. We've probably barely said thanks much of the time. A few years ago, I went to something called Seminary Theological College. And I trained for four years, studied for four years, uh, the Bible and theology. And one of the courses at the, at the college was, was so f terrifying that very few people took it. It was regarded as the most challenging course taught by the most scary and uh, intimidating professor, Dr. Lim, who was a, an absolute genius Korean-American. It was so challenging that the course was actually the workload of two whole courses built into one. Only the most gifted or insane students would do it. These were the students with really thick glasses, couldn't do small talk. They all went on and did a PhD. Some of the people like that are in here. It's great to have you. But I didn't do the course. <laughs> in the opening lecture, the professor said five words that summed the whole thing up. This is how he dealt with the problem of evil. Five words. God doesn't owe us anything. God doesn't owe us anything. He's great. The most high. He gives you every breath you take. And God could be a bully. He could be a megalomaniac. But the wonder of the Bible is that this God turns out to be loving and kind and gracious. He's the loving creator. He made the world to share his life with it. He wanted to share his life with people. He wanted to extend his family to include billions of human beings. That's God. That's the God we've been thinking about in Genesis. But what about us? What are we like? Well, look with me back at our text. Um, actually, go back a little bit further back to up the page to verse 
21 of chapter 8, chapter 8 verse 21, the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. Every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. Now this is after the flood. And you're thinking, but I thought the flood was supposed to sort all the problems out. Look back to what God said about humans in chapter 6, verse 5 and 6, page 8. Chapter 6, verse 5 and 6. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. It's the same. That was what caused the flood. And after the flood, eight people come out and guess what? The problem's still in there. The human heart's still bad. It says that we are actually corrupted. Like a computer with a corrupted hard drive. It just doesn't go straight. It says that we're actually evil. And part of that is shown in our violence. Now, do you, do you believe this? That we're evil? Let me just go back to that newspaper. This is the Manchester Evening News. From this week, Tuesday 22nd of November, what about one newspaper in one city for one day? What are human beings like? We've got a few pages of flood photographs. And then we get on to page six. Bully carers who taunted dementia patients are caged. Two young women in their early 20s working as carers in a care home for the elderly, people with Alzheimer's and dementia. They tortured, taunted and tormented them for fun. They've been locked up. The paper's been praised for helping to expose cruel staff. The people who are the most vulnerable in society, the elderly, with Alzheimer's or dementia, being tormented by their very carers. Page 8. A photograph of a drink driver who drove his car into someone's house and actually parked his car inside their house, <laughs> causing £25,000 worth of damage. Family tale of terror as a man gets a suspended jail sentence. The cat was thrown 30 feet into the house. Page 9. A dad, 24-year-old father, almost blinded in a glassing horror in a bar. Somebody took a pint glass and pushed it into his face, one inch below his eye because he pushed them. Mother and a girl hurt in a car crash. Page 10. It's about a chef. Move on. <laughs> Page 11. The police stay tight-lipped over informant claims. They won't confirm or deny whether a man who died from a gunshot wound at the home of a Cheshire businessman was an informant. He was shot in the guy's home. Page 12, not guilty plea in headless corpse hearing. They found a suitcase with a headless corpse in it. Someone's been tried for killing his friend and cutting his head off and putting him in a suitcase. Page 14, there's an advert for the lottery. I'll go with one more story. You get in the picture here. Page 18, Two women convicted of murdering another woman. Uh, one of them was an accomplice for helping her friend stab a love rival to death. 
This is what they did. She was obsessed, called the woman to her house, zapped her with a 500,000-volt cattle prod as she answered at the door of her home in Helmshaw in Lancashire before launching a frenzied knife attack on a 60-year-old woman. That's, that's just one paper, one day. You see that catalogue of violence and, and corruption? Evil? Robbie Burns wrote, Many in sharp the numerous ills inwoven with our frame. More pointed still, we make ourselves regret, remorse, and shame. And man, whose heaven-erected face the smiles of love adorn, man's inhumanity to man makes countless thousands mourn. You may have read of man's inhumanity to man in The Lord of the Flies or seen the movie. A group of schoolboys in this story are stranded on an island and they're very well brought up middle-class boys from a grammar school or something and as the story unfolds they quickly the, all the veneer of civilization peels away and they quickly revert to savage behavior they actually kill one of the boys okay you say there are some pretty awful people out there but that's just not me i'm not one of them i'm not like that really Really, do you know yourself? How do you respond in your heart when you are deeply hurt and wronged by a family member? How do you respond in your heart when there is inheritance money and you are cheated out of your share? How do you respond in your heart when you're betrayed by someone you love? How do you respond when you're belittled, bullied, pushed around? How do you respond, parents, when someone does something to your child? Again, another story from my seminary days. I'm there training to be a pastor, reading the Bible and praying all day long. One of our kids was downstairs playing with a neighbor's daughter. And he pushed her around. And the neighbor grabbed my son, who was about seven or eight, and dragged him up three flights of stairs, banging his knees and all the way up to the top of our, the block and came to my door holding my son, crying by his hand. Now, my neighbor was a Texan. I understand they do that kind of thing. I was not just cross about that. I actually had murderous thoughts in my heart about that neighbor and guy who became my friend later. Murderous thoughts. Never forget the words of a, a young father who said, I found myself one time in the soft play area Thinking about cutting another dad's throat. <laughs> it wasn't Maxim, even though he's laughing very loudly. You know, our, our hearts, we are no different to these people who end up in the paper. Your life, your skills, your background, your education, your parents, the opportunities you've had, the legal system you've been protected by, all this means you may not have had the opportunity of being as wicked as you really are. But if it was all stripped away, would you really be any better than these others? We have the same essential heart as the rest of humanity, according to the Bible, a heart of self-love and self-absorption. We are corrupt. We're actually violent inside. And we are treasonous. We don't give God the honor he deserves. We don't give the Lord his due. Never forget one time I was working in business. I was a headhunter working in central London. And most of the people knew I was a Christian. And one time over coffee, one of my colleagues 
sidled up to me. I didn't know him that well. He said, can I have a quick word with you? Have you got a book or anything for me to learn about Jesus? He said, I'm not religious, but my wife's had three miscarriages. And she's, got, she's pregnant again, but we've been in hospital, and she might lose the fourth pregnancy. And he said, I found myself praying in the hospital, God, please save this child. And then he said to me, so I'll never forget these words. Then I thought, why should God give me what I ask for? I never give him the time of day. We're treasonous. That man understood it. Imagine a single mother. She's only got one son. She loves him with all her heart. She's poor, so she works two jobs to provide for him. She works all day in a factory and all night cleaning offices. She washes his clothes and cooks his meals, listens to his problems, encourages him. When he falls over, she picks him up. When he weeps, she wipes his tears away. She's always there for him. She gives up her life and comfort for him. And he wants to go to university, so she takes another job to help pay for it. She pays and pays and pays and gives and gives. She's so proud when he finishes law school and he moves to the city. She has a photograph of his graduation ceremony on the wall. She's standing by him, proud. What would you think of the son if he lived like this? He embraces the life that his mother has given him and he lives it to the full. But he never visits. He never calls. He sends her a check every month to pay for the bills. He never phones her up. He never comes to see her. He never asks how she is. He thinks he can pay her off. What would you think of such a son? Is it right that the mother gave her life in return for a check every month? Or does she deserve relationship? You know the answer. You would think, shame on him. But that is how we treat God by nature. So God is well within his rights to be angry. There are reasons for his wrath. God doesn't owe us anything. That is the background to the flood. And I told you it was dark. But you have to see the darkness before you can appreciate the beauty and the light. Because the second thing we learn here in Genesis chapter 9 is that God desires relationships. Second point, relationships even with people like us. God's relationships. Now, Bible-believing Christians often say things like this. We insist that Christianity is all about a relationship with God. And rightly so. We say things like, it's not about religion. It's not about rituals. It's not about uh, behavior. Uh, it's about relationship. You need a relationship with Jesus. True. But what is the nature of that relationship? We've got tons of relationships, haven't we? All different. I've got one kind of relationship with my wife and a very different one with my neighbors. You'd be glad to hear. Or I'd be getting divorced later on. I have one kind of relationship with my kids and a very different relationship with Theresa May, who I've never met. Still have a kind of a relationship. Now, the, the relationship language that God uses in the Bible is a funny word, unusual word. We don't perhaps use it in everyday speech. It is a covenant. A covenant. 
We do have this word. It's used in marriage, for example. Marriage is a covenant. Or you'll find it in legal documents. If you, if you buy a flat or a house, you'll probably have some covenant language in there. Charity, trust, deeds, maybe mentioned covenants. But God calls his relationship with human beings a covenant. And every stage of the Bible, it's like a thread running right through the book. Uh, God relates to his people through a covenant. A covenant is a promise Normally with conditions. It's a promise with conditions. Very first time the word covenant appears in the Bible is here in our passage. Look at chapter 9, verse 9. God says to Noah, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you. God here makes a covenant, a promise, more than a promise, a legally binding, relationship-defining promise, with all creation. So, what kind of relationship is a covenant? Now, in the ancient world, it's a promise that has conditions. A great king would make a covenant with a, a local king and bring him into relationship, him and all his people. The great king would state his name and who he was and the history of the relationship with the local king. And then he would set out the terms of the covenant. He would say... Uh, we are in this relationship, and I expect you to do this. And if you keep these terms, there will be many blessings for you. But if you break the terms of this covenant, there will be curses for you. Keep it, and you'll be blessed. Break it, and it will go very badly. And that was standard procedure in the ancient world. The people who read this, the Israelites, the very first people, knew what covenants were because they'd seen them and heard all about them. God relates to us through covenants. It has a formal statement, like a treaty. And it has a sign that seals the deal and represents it. Here are the major Bible covenants, if you're a note taker. Uh, Noah and the rainbow, that's a covenant with the whole of creation. The rainbow is the sign. Abraham, Moses, at which point the sign is circumcision. King David has a special covenant for him and his, his family. And then the new covenant, the new covenant which Jesus Christ inaugurates. Now, they, some say there's a covenant with Adam. We can talk about that afterwards if you like. But there are definitely covenant language used on those five. Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, and New. Okay, what does all this mean about God's relationships? What is God's relationship status? If he had a Facebook page. Uh, it means, first of all, that God is king. Because the king's the one making the covenant. And some say that's the main theme of the entire Bible. God rules. Great king. Secondly, it means that God makes promises to us. He makes promises that have conditions to be kept. And that means, thirdly, that God binds himself to us. He binds himself to us. His love is locked onto us in an unending commitment. So when you think about, if you're, a person, if you're a believer here, if you're a Christian, you may sometimes think about your relationship with God in individualistic terms, about the time you trusted Jesus and how you follow him. And that's all true. But really it's in a much bigger framework that God, the great king, has loved you and promised to you and, and come after you and called you into a relationship with you in which he's unendingly committed to you. He will keep you. That's what God's relationships are like. That's what he does. That's what he wants. Even though our hearts are dark, as we've thought already, he wants to love us 
in unending commitment. The relationship status is permanent. But can you see the tension that we're now finding here in the Bible? How can perfect, holy God mix with and commit to polluted, corrupted people? How can light mix with darkness? How can purity mingle with pollution and not be corrupted by it? There's a problem there. There's a tension. How can this God be bound in relationship to us as he wants to? Now, the answer lies, thirdly and finally, in the rainbows. The rainbow. Actually, can we skip forward until there's a picture here of a rainbow? I've got a holiday snap to show you. This is from the Isle of Bute up in Scotland, half an hour west of Glasgow. Keep going. It's a couple of slides more. I hope it's going to show up because it's an absolutely gorgeous picture. It's not come up. Keep clicking. It will come up. Now, in this picture, which you're going to see in a moment, hopefully, these two guys are going to have a heart attack. Here we are. Well done. You see that? In fact, you can just about see there's a double rainbow there. This was after we'd been in this uh, tourist place, and there'd been a huge storm, and the sky had darkened, and the rain came down, and then the, the sun came out, and you know there's going to be a rainbow when it's like that. And there it was. It was absolutely glorious. You could see from one end to the other almost, and it just hovered in the sky. Now, according to Genesis chapter 9, this is a sign of an everlasting, enduring covenant. Let's read again from Genesis chapter 9, verse 11. I establish my covenant with you. What's the promise? Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I'm making between me and you. And every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And whenever I bring clouds over the earth, and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you, and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the cloud, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I've established. This is the sign. It's the rainbow. It's a beautiful sign. But why choose this one? Why choose a rainbow? Now, some have argued that the flood was global and that to get that amount of water on the earth required a fundamental change in the structure of the climate and the earth itself, after which rainbows appeared. Some have argued that. So they think that this is the first ever rainbow. But our text doesn't say that. And everywhere else in the Bible, covenant signs are things that pre-exist but are given new meaning. So an example would be the sign of the new covenant is baptism, getting plunged in water and raised up again. And water wasn't invented with baptism, and neither was baptism, actually. Baptism existed before Jesus made it the sign of the new covenant. Sign of the Mosaic covenant, or the covenant with Sinai, was circumcision. Pretty sure foreskins existed before that covenant was instituted. So why choose a rainbow? Some have pointed out the glory and the grace of the rainbow. It is glorious. It's shining. It's beautiful. It's new. It suggests a new moment, a new day. There's something captivating about rainbows. Uh, a great U2 song, Beautiful Day, says, After the flood... 
all the colors came out. A bright token at the end of a storm and a new era. But it also represents grace, undeserved favor, because you can't earn a rainbow. You can't deserve it. You can't control it and somehow merit it. You don't do a bargain with God and he gives you the rainbow in return. He gives it freely. God's covenant here is not a bargain. It's beyond our reach. You can't reach out and touch a rainbow, can you? When you were a kid, did you ever try and find the bottom of the rainbow in the pot of gold? How frustrating was that? God gives the rainbow when he wants to. And the promise he attaches to to it here is amazing. It's completely unconditional. Every human being, however good, bad, or ugly, will be preserved from the the floodwaters in that way. All the creatures, the earth itself is going to be preserved. It's pure grace, sheer grace. But some have seen something even more profound here in this rainbow image. It's that the rainbow is a bow, like a battle bow. It's the same word in the Hebrew language for the bow that's used in warfare, a death-dealing battle bow. So God here lays down his bow. He puts down his uh, weapon and says, I'm making peace. It is the first act of unilateral disarmament in history. Human beings are still warring with God and ignoring him and blaming him and disobeying him, but God lays down his bow. And he makes a promise. But how can he do it? Back to our tension. How can God be just and deal with evil and yet be at peace with us? He can't just opt out. He's God. Justice must be done. Guilt must be atoned for. Penalties must be paid. How will God resolve the tension? Now you might be guessing the answer by now. It's this. Where is the arrow pointing? Where is the arrow pointing? It's pointing straight up at heaven. It's pointing at God's great heart. That's how he will resolve the tension. You see, the world is still evil. There's no better since the flood. The earth is filled with violence. And God is still angry with sin. And he will let fly an arrow of judgment. Evil matters that much to God. But the arrow won't pierce your heart. It pierced the heart of Jesus Christ. Jesus took the punishment due for our sins. He took the blow. The arrow was aimed at Jesus, the man of heaven, on the cross. That's where the problem is resolved. That's how much God has loved us, how he has treated us, how he regards us. And if that is how God has treated us with such love, and mercy, then how should we respond? Jesus told us to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute you. He said, love one another as I have loved you. As much as Jesus has loved us, we should love one another. He said, we've got to bear with one another, with all our faults and foibles. He says, this is how the world will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Let's commit to that high standard of love as we come in a minute to the Lord's table, remembering what he's done for us, remembering his reasons for being angry, the relationship that he's made, 
and the rainbow that he's established and the covenant that Jesus now makes through his own body and blood. Let's pray. Gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, we confess our sins before you now and we confess them for what they really are, uh, utterly abhorrent and treasonous and evil. And yet we thank you that your love goes further still and deeper still and is inexhaustible and that you will do anything and go to any lengths to love and forgive us and bring us back and that you sent your own dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ, for such as us. Accept our praise and thanks, we pray. Meet with us now at the table, we pray, and draw people here into true relationship with you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net.